Welcome to Church Unscripted, and this is our 20th episode. We're really glad you're here with us today, and uh, I have Pastor David and Pastor Eric here with me. You need to like and subscribe so you can get this immediately and hit the notification bell so you know when we upload these um, episodes. And Sunday, we're in our Worthless series, and we've been talking a lot about the accusations that come at Jesus in John chapter 8. And uh, specifically on Sunday, though, Eric, there was a couple things that it was like a lot. They're claiming that Jesus sinned. Right. right. That yeah. was one part of it. And then the second part of it was they're also claiming he's demonic or there's evil power within him. So yeah. there's a sub part of the sin part um, that I think is tied together. When we talk about sin, we often think about shame. Mm-hmm. And so you talked on Sunday about how the enemy reminds us of our sin and shames us. And so I thought of like right away is can shame ever be from God or is it always from us or Satan? Like, what's the source of shame, and how do we deal with it? I mean, so I'll, I'll, <laughs> look at David. He was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> uh, again, go, not a very go first in. good question. I yeah. thought you were going to have a prime the pump kind of. Okay, question, well, but. well, here, here's the prime the pump. So Sunday, yeah, no, I don't no, have a prime the pump have, question. <laughs> I can't fake that one. Uh, no, that's real. That's a really good question, and I, I'm, I'm I'm excited about my answer. Not because I think I'm right, but because I think this is what Scripture suggests. Um, I think there's a major difference between shame and guilt. Um, okay. I think the difference is that guilt is a recognition of a wrongdoing. Um, shame is a belief that you are not who God says you are. So it's a degrading of your personhood. It's a degrading of your value and worth in the eyes of God uh, because you see that yourself that way. So yeah. you're seeing yourself not made in the image of God anymore. Oh, yeah. Or not worthy of God's love anymore or disqualifying of his blessings in your life or even salvation for that matter. So guilt, I believe, does come from God, although not in an overbearing and heavy-handed kind of way, but enough for us to recognize, oh, okay, that that, that did not make the heart of God happy, you know? But without that kind of guilt, how would we know that we've actually done wrong except for some mental ascension to some weird sense of morality or ethics. So, but Would you say that Satan almost uses that guilt from God in a way of like a corrective way, like we as parents would say that was wrong. Do you think Satan takes that guilt and then pushes us to oh, absolutely. as absolutely. part of his weapon? Absolutely. I mean, we could do this to our kids very easily because mm. um, our kids mess up all the time, right? And as parents, hopefully as good parents, we try to do everything we can to correct them. But the first thing we have to do to correct them is to let them know that what they did was wrong. But from there, we could either say, hey, you did this wrong, but I want you to know that you are still loved and nothing's going to change how proud I am of you. Or we could say, and you're an idiot for doing that, you know? Yeah. Um, how how dare you do that? Yeah. You're not my kid. Right. So I think it's dangerous and it's a, it's, it's a temptation to go to the shame part when I think the only mm-hmm. thing God wants us to experience is a degree of the guilt part so that it can lead us to repentance. So there's kind of a, kind of a balance. You just made me think of a couple more things as you were talking. Yeah. You know, I think of my children. I have four kids. Mm-hmm. They respond differently mm-hmm. when they've done something wrong. Like I have one child that they'll go and run and kind of hide. And I think they feel a lot of shame. Like they're in this shame cycle. Mm. And I'm like, what did I do to parent them that way? But then I thought about it and I'm like, my other child doesn't do that. And I respond to them very similarly. Yeah. And they decide to go, (laughs) like they don't even care, which if you know my kids, you know which one is doing what. (laughs) But but, um, how do we, how do we respond to our families in a way that doesn't produce shame, but helps people understand the seriousness 
of what's happened. So for example, like mm. your kid touches a burner on a stove. You don't want him to do that, but you also don't want to yell at him about it. Mm. So like what, how do we balance that as parents and maybe as spouses mm -hmm. um, when we see an opportunity to, for them to grow, you know? Well, good thing that's an easy question because parenting is so easy, isn't it? And <laughs> yeah. our kids all respond the yeah. same way to every situation. And uh, it's really a non-question. No, just, uh, my, my goodness. I mean, you're right. Every kid you have is different personality, different makeup. And so when it comes to guilt and, and mm. challenging wrongdoing, I mean, I'll, I'm going to let you respond too. But my perspective is you have to really know your kid's personality. Yeah. Because I've got some kids too who, who when they hear that they've done something wrong, they'll just kind of, you know, shrug it off and be like, eh, whatever. And it's only till we get a little bit more heavy-handed and maybe bring some discipline in, yeah. where okay, now they feel the mm -hmm. pain of the wrongdoing. Yeah. However, if I do that too much, he can e very easily. This is Judah can very easily uh, think that he is he's not loved. Yeah. Um. So I think it's you have to you have to tailor make your parenting. Right. and your discipline to the way God designed them. Yeah. And, and that's not easy. Well, I, I almost view it as... So <laughs> before David says anything, <laughs> what I hear you saying... Don't forget what you're going to say. I'm, just, okay? I'm restating yeah. something because I think this is important for parents. Okay. You're saying there's no book, there's no strategy. It's about knowing your kids. That's kind of what I'm hearing, knowing your kids and how to respond to your, your kids. I say there's a ton of books I that give you tactics and... Yeah. No, you're kidding. No, if they're <laughs> not, we need to write it. Okay. Um, there's a ton of books I think that give you tactics on how to parent, but if you don't know your kids personally and their personalities, mm -hmm. then I think it's all for naught. So that's the foundation, I believe. But yeah. I was I was thinking of that almost more of like as we're talking about identity from an identity perspective. Like if if one of my kids lies, there's a way to bring that out and say, You lied, but you're not a liar. You know what I mean? Like there's a way that we can discipline and parent in the way that makes our kids or even our spouse feel like a liar or feel like whatever. Um, but I think there's a, an important distinction with that to, to not make it an identity statement, but to say, hey, I saw this. It needs corrected. Uh, but that's not who you are. And that's why I'm calling you with this guilt thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that, that's a, I've got a question related to that. So uh, this last week when I'm driving my kids to school, I can't remember how we got on the conversation, but one of my kids asked me, is God ever disappointed in us? Mm. And I thought that was going to be an easy question. And I realized it's not an easy question. Mm. Um, and so I talked a little bit about the difference between how I perceived what it means to be disappointed in somebody compared to being upset with somebody. But I, I kind of want to get your opinion. Does God ever get disappointed in us as I mean, if we're believers, right? We're a part yeah. of the family. We are heirs with Jesus Christ. Does God ever get disappointed in us? You both looked at me for that one. That's right. Good job, Eric. This You're is welcome. way throw throw yeah. it back at me. <laughs> that Eric, was, uh, that right was my like... prime the pump question. So <laughs> you're welcome. Okay. Uh, so I don't think there's a matter of fact, yes or no answer to that. But I do think something mm -hmm. is true. Um, I think there's times where we do grieve the Holy Spirit because scripture talks about that or or it grieves the Holy Spirit that we're going through what we're going through. But that's less disappointment and more our circumstances and the pain that we're going through and it's it's with us in that. What, what do you mean by grieve the Holy Spirit? Um, it grieves the Holy Spirit when we sin, I think. I mean, when we, when we sin, when we do something wrong that's against God's law or against God or against the Holy Spirit, um, it grieves the Holy Spirit. I mean, I... 
we keep thinking of God as this emotionless being out wherever. And the problem is God gave us emotions because we're made in the image of God. So God does have emotions. And so I think in some ways, can God be disappointed in us? Um, I don't think in the way I can be disappointed in my kids, but definitely there's a way that we can grieve God mm. in what we do. I mean, if you look at here um, in the passage, you, you did bring something up that I think is really here is whoever hears the words of God, the reason is why you do not hear them is you are not of God. And so I think it grieves God when we're not of him, like like pursuing him and a part of his family. Um, I don't think God is um, celebrates when people are dis, uh, not part of the family, if that makes sense. When someone becomes part of the family, heaven rejoices. So I think that's how we could grieve the Holy Spirit is if we're not part of his family, I think that's a really hard part. And so that's how you define you know, God being disappointed in us is if we mm. grieve the Holy Spirit. Okay, how do you? Eric's like, I got a whole nother idea. <laughs> Go to you now. What, is yeah. it, what does it mean to be disappointed in somebody? Well, oh, well, well so, that's a different question. That's a different well, question. Okay. Well, I, if God's disappointed God in you, oh, can God gotcha. be disappointed I'll, I'll in us? That. That's okay. different. So I guess I view the, I don't know. That's a hard, a hard question. But I think the, 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 the word that came to mind was heartbroken. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, like, we're made in his image. So naturally, as I father, there's an element of him in me, right? And so there's times when my kids do things that are not right, um, and it breaks my heart because I want to see them do or be or say these things. And I think that's the heart of God is that it breaks his heart when his children uh, don't live in the way that he knows that they should. Um, and I don't know if that's, I don't know if he's ever, I don't know. The word disappointed is, is really hard to say because that implies like that we have some standard to be upheld. I feel like that's like, I'm done with you. Like disappointed to me in my mind is like, oh, I can't, you're, like, you're a lost cause. And I don't think he ever views anyone that way. W- were you guys ever like this as a kid? I would rather my parents being angry at me when I was a kid than being disappointed. Like disappointed was like mm. neglect. Like, I don't want to ever see you again. I'm disowning oh, you. Yeah. And I don't think God ever gets to that point. So like disappointment is a hard word. Yeah. So I'm like, uh, I don't know if that's really, I don't that, know if there's was, a point. That's why it was a hard question for me to answer for my kids. And I'm supposed to be like this pastor and everything with a seminary degree. And I had a hard time answering it. And, and actually, as I thought through it, it made me realize I have to be very, very careful when I use that word. Mm. Because when I hear people talk about their sin and how that, create a, a perception of how God views them. I never hear them say, you know, I think God's angry with me right now. All, what I always hear them say is I think God's disappointed in me. And the reason I think that's significant is because when you perceive that somebody is disappointed in you, that leads to the shame that you allow on you. Mm. Um, and if, if you don't feel like somebody's disappointed in you, then why would you be ashamed of yourself, right? Mm. Um, but when I thought about the word itself, um, I, I began to realize that actually disappointed is the opposite of whatever you have been appointed with. Mm. So, so the idea of, of being a Christian is God has appointed 
certain truths about us. Like we are sons and daughters of the King. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are beloved children of God. All that kind of stuff. Everywhere you read in scripture, there are certain things that God has appointed of us. To be disappointed in somebody means that you now no longer believe those things about the person. So at least that's the way I understand it, right? So if I'm, if I feel like- Well, now I'm thinking of all the scenarios in the Old Testament of disappointment. Yeah, so- if I feel like God's disappointed in me, I'm beginning to believe that he no longer sees me the way he used to see me, or he no longer believes that I'm worthy of being in his family that I thought he used to believe I was. And so that will lead to my shame. But if I, if I can recognize through guilt, but not shame, that God might be upset with me sometimes, or he might, I don't know, even be annoyed with me sometimes. I don't know if that's the right language, but not disappointed, then I think that's gonna help protect me from allowing shame to settle on me, Is, which, which translates into the way that I talk to my kids. I, yeah. I have to be very careful that I don't say, I'm disappointed in you, because that's gonna communicate to them, you are not acting or behaving or living in the way that I thought was consistent. That almost character. puts like yeah. the worth in what they yeah. do, yeah. right? Yeah. And it, and it shifts to, David, what you said earlier versus you lied versus you're a liar. Yeah. And yeah, when you're it's disappointed, identity. it's identity. It's like, no, I'm disappointed in you. Right. Mm-hmm. It's all of who you are that I'm disappointed in. Yeah. So now, when I'm you're angry, frustrated with like, what you did and now I'm yeah. disappointed in you. Wow. And, and I would say, I would say even as a, I mean, coming full circle and talking as a parent, it's hard for children to disconnect that up to a certain age until they can think abstractly. Like you say, you lied to me and they're like, you're calling me a liar. I mean, that's the automatic response for some of my kids when they're at an age where they don't connect that, but it's a teaching moment. It's an opportunity that you can come around your children and talk to them um, more in depth. I think, I think shame is actually probably the single biggest indicator of, um, I guess, a spiritual regression. Like when you grow spiritually and you come back, it's shame attacking you through Satan, which is, I mean, you covered a ton Sunday. So mm. let me, let me. Uh, I had a few more thoughts kind of in the middle of your sermon. You said, if Jesus has cleared you, no one can convict you. And I think that like really is what we're dealing with when we say the word disappoint or we, we bring shame um, to someone. Um, you also said, if you're still living in shame because of your past sin, you've been deceived into believing a lie. And so I think, is there a lie that we're believing? What do you think is the lie that most people believe when they feel shame? I'm saying most, I'm not saying all, just what, maybe what's one that you believed, a lie that brought you shame? Uh, wow. <laughs> uh, hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I can start. I have an answer because I've been thinking about this. Go for it. Okay. So I think, I think the number one thing for me is usually you're not measuring up. And I mean, I think that's a lot of people. Um, It comes in different ways. I'm not a perfectionist. You can ask my wife. She's like, house needs to be clean. This is what it looks like. And I'm like, doesn't look cluttered to me. I don't know. I'm fine. So (laughs) you should let her win on that one. I know I did. I, I many times over. Yes. But I think like once you start believing the lie, I don't measure up, then you have shame every time that that thought comes back in your brain. And then it keeps going and it keeps cycling. So the reason I say that is to say, like, I think a lot of times we have these shame lies, mm. is kind of the way I would say it, that are cycling in our brain. And mm. how do we get those out? Yeah. Like, I, uh, David, you, yeah. you thought of one while I was. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, like mine, I would say is similar. Like, I'll never be good enough. You know, like there's, there's always, like, there's always a way to do it better. 
you know? And, um, but you asked, how do we combat those lies? And, um, I've, I've read a book by Craig Rochelle. I don't know if you've read it cause you like Craig Rochelle, but it's called winning the war on your mind. Mm-hmm. And the premise of the book is that your thoughts dictate your behavior. And so we can actually allow shame to create a neurological pathway in our brain. Uh, if we allow it to, it will become that thought. And so you have to fight against any thoughts. That's why scripture says, take every thought captive because it actually does something scientifically to your brain. It creates a new way of thinking. And I think that's when people get in a lot of trouble is when they begin to identify with that thought and then the actions begin to follow that. And so I think we've got to be so alert and take those thoughts captive and pave a new way. When I, when I met with a thought of shame, I take that captive and I plant a thought of grace, of freedom, or whatever that looks like. That's one of my favorite verses, take captive every thought and make it obedient to the Lordship of Jesus. And that's a hard thing to do. Um, But that's why I love uh, Romans chapter 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed not by the renewing of your behavior or the renewing of your heart, but by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is. So um, I, I think there's this huge precedent that your mind is in fact the battlefield. And what happens in your mind translates into what you do with your body into how your heart remains either pure or becomes corrupted. Um, And so if you can allow the Lordship of Jesus to overwhelm whatever influences in your mind, then I think you have an upper hand in combating the shame and disappointment in your life. Well, wow, that was a lot right there. But I think think one of the things that I, I recently read about this is it takes 63 days to change a habit. I've heard that. That's and, a long time. And it's a long time. So that can feel overwhelming. But think about this as the 30-second practice of your day. If there's a thought, a shame thought in your mind, um, what are you going to replace that thought with from Scripture? Like, I mean, what does Scripture say about who you are? Um, what does that look like? Think on that thought, meditate on that thought and that Scripture, and spend time focused on that. And if you do that over 63 days, what happens? You know, your thoughts completely change. And um, I've done that a few times for a, a longer extended period. And it works. I mean, it's consistent. Um, the old pop psychology thing was 21 days to change a habit. You ever hear that? I remember that, yeah. Well, what I found out is because people are, are doing that, I read about New Year's resolutions this week. Sorry, this is totally church not, unscripted. Not the right time right? of year. I mean. Church unscripted. So we're in, we're in May. Um, a majority of New Year's resolutions are broken in the first 21 days because people think it's only going to take 21 days. And they get there and then the next highest percentage is between day 21 and day 28. So in one week after that. So basically by the end of January, no one's at the gym. So don't go to the gym on January 1, but wait until February. So, um, but I think it's very important. Like both of you said, you have to put another thought in your mind. You can't just say, stop doing this, stop doing this, because then you end up doing it. They've done studies psychologically that that happens. And so when we're focused on the word, we're replacing something, shame in our life with the word of God. And so I think that's really, really important. I got a question. Okay. So you said replace that thought with the word of God. How do you memorize scripture or do you? Because I've, I've struggled with this like my whole life. Like I just listened to a sermon where David Platt quoted all of Romans 8. Like that's, in, that's incredible. But how do, you, how do you guys use scripture? 
So mm-hmm. good question. <laughs> can I can I respond yeah. or Eric? Do you want to? You want oh, to you go first. Okay. So I I am very challenged by that, yeah. and the reason I'm very challenged by that is I've seen people that have this. Uh, I think it's called an eidetic memory where they just basically see something on a page mm-hmm. and then they just like literally can picture it in their head. Yep. It drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a guy I mentored when I was in college and he was in high school. He memorized the book of Romans in like two weeks, like the whole book. Yep. And I would rattle off like, oh, and he, Romans 9.3. And like he would just rattle off the verse. He could get the references and everything. And honestly, I just like felt discouraged. I was like, this guy I'm mentoring is like way better memorization than I'll ever be. Um, I think, I think the key thing specifically for me, and I think honestly, it's dependent upon the person. Mm -hmm. So you got to start somewhere is meditating. So repeating repetition, Mm -hmm. people talk about repetition. And the other part of it is if, if you're maybe not good at word for word, because some people are just not good at that. I'm okay at it. Not great at it. Um, but I'm really good at memorizing concepts. And so like when I look at a passage, um, I usually take it by the chapter and I think like, okay, what's this chapter about? And like, maybe it's the preaching part of me is like, okay, I've got this big idea for this. And I take those ideas and then I'm able to share those with people. Um, Is it weird to say like on command, like just be like, okay, this is an idea Mm -hmm. I've implanted. Um, I also think that you have to continually be in the word to memorize. Like if you're not reading, Mm If you're not reading the word, you can't memorize the word. Mm-hmm. And so like, you have to be reading. Um, and it has to be intentional. So if it's not intentional, then mm-hmm. yeah, know, it's a I point. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think you have to be proactive and then intentional. That's exactly what you said. Uh, the way that I do that, practically speaking, is is I have to, uh, I've, I've mentioned this before, I've got to get up early and I've got to have that intentional mm-hmm. time in the word and prayer. And I think a while ago, especially when we're in the, in the Holy Spirit series, <clears throat> excuse me, I mentioned that, um, the Holy Spirit has the ability of of dropping passages, mm. dropping the mm-hmm. word of God in yeah. your mind when you need it at the right time. But the thing is, is you've got to give him mm. to some degree the word of God for him to remind you of. Right. So that's why it says I've hidden the word of God in my heart, right? So if you're not proactively spending time in scripture, then you're limiting what the Holy Spirit can remind you of. And the other thing about the intentionality thing is the way that I do that is try to maximize and capitalize on mental downtime. So when I'm driving, I mean, I'm not the, I'm not the best on music anyway. And so what I do sometimes is just shut it off and then I'll spend that time to either pray or to memorize, to rehearse what I'm memorizing. When I'm at the gym and I'm on the elliptical for 15, 20 minutes, it's, that's boring. It's so boring. So what I did is I uh, printed off on one side, Colossians chapter one, on the other side, Romans chapter eight, and I laminated it. And so I take that to the gym with me, put it on the stand, and then I, I just rehearse while I'm on the elliptical. And by now I've got Colossians 1 memorized and I'm working on Romans chapter eight. So if you're intentional and proactive about it, you can memorize a ton of scripture. I just talked to my dad yesterday uh, and he has now 28 pages of scripture memorized. Wow. Um, and I think when you hide the word of God in your heart, then the Holy Spirit's empowered yeah. to use it when you need it. It, it's, if I could give this analogy to it, <clears throat> if I can, yeah. um, I can't remember if I've mentioned this on this podcast mm-hmm. or not before, but if you're in the military, <clears throat> especially in the infantry or ground soldier, one of the things they train you on is how to spot and then deactivate landmines. Mm. And so if you're walking through a field in enemy territory and you step on a landmine, you want to know how to deactivate that thing and defuse it. So what they don't do is they don't say, hey, <clears throat> don't worry about these landmines. <clears throat> Excuse me. They, they don't say, just ignore them. 
you know, and they won't be there. If they train the soldiers that way, we'd have a lot more soldiers coming home losing legs. Yeah. Instead, what they do is they proactively train their soldiers to spot the landmines and then deactivate them. So if in the unlikely scenario that they step on one, they can survive. Hmm. And so that's the same thing. It's, it's every single day you might not have a spiritual crisis. Hmm. But when you do have a spiritual crisis, when you step on that spiritual landmine and Satan is really good mm. at putting spiritual landmines in our way, mm-hmm. um, will you have the spiritual training through prayer and scripture, including memorization, to know how to deactivate that spiritual landmine so that you're spiritually uh, can continue to thrive? That's that was great, man. That okay. was great. I was yeah. like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm like thinking about how, what you even said there, I think one of the things that, maybe as a struggle as I was, as you were talking was um, giving your full attention to. Mm. So being intentional and proactive is one thing, but then being intentional and proactive and giving your full attention to, I mean, we have divided attention. Mm. I watch people and I see them like in a, a social setting and half the people are on their phones or this, yeah. this or that going on. But for memorization, you can't do that. Can you? I mean, you can't be divided. I can't be like, okay, Marie, this, hey, Eric, how's it going? You know, like you can't do two different things. Mm -hmm. So even in being proactive, you have to be focused um, and intentional on that. Um, I think that's probably the greatest barrier with shame is reminding ourselves of who God is in that battle that we have to use the landmine. Everyone's going to step on a landmine, but there's certain people it's going to take their leg off and certain people are not because they're prepared. Um, Also to think of Ephesians, I think of like, putting on the armor of God. We can't put on the armor of God if we don't know where the armor is. Right. Right. And so uh, a couple of things that you mentioned about sin and shame, I, I thought there was a little, the little aside, you didn't, you alluded to it on Sunday, but it said, you said, if Jesus is clear, both with he, where he's standing or, oh, you didn't say this. I was thinking this. Okay. This is my thought. See, you're like, Awkward. wait a second. I, like, I, don't, I don't remember saying this. If Jesus, like when I was if Jesus can, yourself. yeah, exactly. <laughs> if Jesus can clear us, he's both standing in our place, taking our sin and shame, yeah. which is the gospel, mm-hmm. but he's also the ultimate judge is a little bit what that verse said in John chapter eight. Yeah. So if Jesus is the ultimate judge, what are some reasons Jesus followers allow others to be the judge in our lives? We allow other people to judge us rather than allow Jesus to be that primary judge. I think that's where the shame comes from, mm. I guess, is, is a way of saying, it. like, we allow people's comments to influence what we f- think about ourselves instead of allowing Jesus that says we're, the, we're his children, we're part of his family. Right. He's died for our sins. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's where we put our attention. I mean, if you just look at culture, the majority of the time, and I'm, I'm tempted with this, is social media. And that, that essentially is allowing other people to, be the judge in your life and dictate what you should look like, where you, what your identity should look like. But if I spend time here, then I'll know in my heart that this is where my identity is. Jesus is the judge um, and I don't have to worry about these things. And so I think it's honestly, it's where you put your attention that drives those thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a really good, that's a really good point. That's one of the things that, that we are so um, impressed with Jesus about in chapter eight is that regardless of all the intense opinions that are leveled against him, Jesus still doesn't change his mind. Right. And he still stays on track with his message and his purpose. And 
And I think the reason that we have such a hard time with that is because number one, we don't like to be told no and we don't like to be disagreed with. Well, well, wait, that, wait, 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 wait. You don't like to be told no? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No one likes that, to be told no. That's another conversation. Okay? No, no one yeah. likes to be told Nobody no. Nobody likes or... to be told no. And so we want to be sensitive to other people's emotions, right? And so if they are strong in their opinions about perhaps us or what we're saying or thinking, and we say, no, you're wrong, then we're like, okay, we just hurt their feelings. Right. And so we're a sensitive people that doesn't want to rock the boat relationally with people. So it's almost like we're more apt to compromise our integrity or our beliefs in order to maintain that relational, I don't know, what do you call it? Um, equilibrium. Mm -hmm. We don't want to upset that. Yeah. But that's exactly what Jesus refused to do. Mm. Um, and when you, I think, are more confident in your identity in Jesus, you almost kind of take on, and I know it's kind of crass to say, but you kind of take on this, I don't care what you think opinion mm. or mentality. Um, and you're not a jerk about it, but it's like, I have not given you authority to determine my behavior or my thoughts or my values in life. Only Jesus has that authority. So I'm not trying to be offensive, but thanks, but no thanks. Well, uh, and in some ways that, that should be true of us. I mean, mm -hmm. if, if someone says something to your children, that's not true of them and they have this emotion, I, I hear my kids say this frequently. They say, you made me feel. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes as adults, even we're saying, oh, you made me feel this way and you're in the wrong now. And the problem is it's not like they didn't make us feel. We allowed them mm -hmm. to make us feel. And I, so I think there's some, some things going on there that we really need to work on. Um, I, this is more of an aside. I was thinking in the sermon, I'm like, okay, so if Jesus is the ultimate judge and, and we have this sin and shame here and everything, right? So, I mean, some of us, when we hear judge, it's a little scary. So should it scare us that God's the judge? I mean, wh why or why not? Like, should it? Should it ever scare us? Not as believers, well, I, right? I, I mean, but... I think because, I think because we have this, this preconceived notion of what a judge is, then I think that does scare us. But if, if, your, if your filter is the behavior of God to his people, then the fact that he is the only judge should be the... The only, or the, the ultimately encouraging, mm -hmm. because his judgment, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, is, is always gracious. It's always merciful, and we have been uh, shown in Scripture that Jesus, as the mediator, um, argues our case. Mm -hmm. He's our attorney that fights for us, mm -hmm. even though God is not trying to get us. Mm -hmm. uh, but when God looks at us, He sees the blood of Jesus Christ, and so in a sense, in mm -hmm. Christ, there's nothing that is needing to be judged. Mm -hmm because all of the judgment and the wrath of God that was meant for us was put on Jesus. Yeah. It's only the people who have refused to let Jesus take that judgment from them that still have that judgment um, reserved for them. So can you keep talking? I got to send a text really quick. You keep so, talking. So this is great. So, so the, the, the kind of the great deception yeah. then is Satan is trying to make us believe, believe that in some way that's that's true that god is scary as the judge when in reality he's our father and he loves us and he cares for us and when he sees us hurting he's got tears in his eyes and he wants to be with us yeah. he wants to embrace us so essentially that might be the great lie of shame in general yeah. like mm -hmm. any shame is that I mean, David, do you have something to add? You're, you're, no, I'm just you're, agreeing. No, I just, yeah. I just feel like that's, that's something I, I've seen so many people when they look at God as the judge, it's a scary thing. And even believers that feel this like sense of intense judgment on them. And I keep going back to uh, shame. I heard it described once as worldly guilt. 
Shame is worldly guilt. And what it means is, is it's not bringing you closer to the Father, not closer to God. It's actually drawing you away from God. Mm -hmm. So you know when it's guilt because it's drawing you close to him Yeah. because you're like, I'm convicted, maybe. That's the term mm -hmm. that people use. And I'm going to go closer to God. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn 180 from my sin because I feel so strongly about yeah. this. Yeah. So, so... This this whole series about accusations, and so I kind of have a, a question to summarize almost our whole discussion. Mm -hmm. How can we practically respond to spiritual accusations? Pause, think about the question. I'm going to give you another sentence. Some of these accusations don't come from others, but our own thoughts. Mm -hmm. They're birthed somehow in our mind. Yeah. And I'm not, I won't get too deep into that. Mm -hmm. But so how do we practically respond to spiritual accusations? Yeah, I mean, I that is a tough question. I feel like we we hit on that a little bit throughout this conversation, yeah. but it's I think it includes uh, developing the discipline, and that's training yourself to take captive every thought and make it obedient to the lordship of Jesus. What that kind of means is you need to kind of understand what Jesus' lordship is all about, right. and that's not just taking you know lustful thoughts and saying Jesus, give me purity of mind right now. It's also taking Jesus. I can't handle this spiritual accusation, and I need you to be like set me free from it, mm -hmm. um, and give me a thought that is more accurate of how you see me, mm -hmm. and that can be a tough thing to do. And it's probably not just like a one sentence prayer. Maybe it's you know, for a period of time, six months, you say, Jesus, I've been feeling this way. Yeah. And so you have lost count of the number of times you have tried to take that thought captive to make it obedient yeah. to his Lordship. I think that's a discipline you have to do. I also think that when you get around wise counsel, I mean, mm -hmm. the book of Proverbs, all throughout the Bible, there's this major precedent and theme of listening to wise, godly counsel. Um, and if you have that around you, then all of a sudden you have an outside voice that can counter this internal voice. Mm -hmm. I think that's the value of Christian community. Yeah. Um, so that, that's a couple of things outside of, you know, spending time memorizing scripture, that's huge. Um, but I would say that all of it, regardless of whatever your practice is, requires discipline, requires training because Satan has perfected his way of attacking us. Yeah. Um, and he's strategic about it. Mm -hmm. And we cannot win that war by being passive. Right. It's you win that battle, even though it's in your mind, by training and disciplining yourself to know how to fight back. That's why the Bible talks about in Ephesians, put on the full armor of God, right? Yeah. There's a reason we need to put on the helmet of salvation yeah. because with a helmet, you can protect yourself, mm. but without it, you're sitting down. And you're protecting your mind. Absolutely. Too, right? mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. David? I thought that was great. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I, as you were saying That's that, why I, you're here, by the way, just to tell us I just, that, that we had great. some good thoughts. That was great. Good job. Yes. Good job. Good job. Cheerleader, so, yes. <laughs> As you, were, as you were saying that, I kept thinking, it, it seems that the times that we're not under attack or we're not feeling shame are the times that we actually prepare for those moments when we're under attack. Mm -hmm. So it's actually the moment where we're not under attack that matters most, um, which I find those moments to be hardest. I would say like my biggest moments of struggle in my life were the times I grew the most, mm -hmm. but the times that were outside of that were the reason I grew the most, Yeah, if that well, makes you, sense. You so. almost like take that landmine analogy and I'm sure as you're training to spot and diffuse these landmines, you're like, goodness gracious, we got to do another one until the day you step on the landmine. Yeah. And you're like, it makes sense now. Like you're almost preparing for a battle. You don't know when it's going to hit. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, and it usually that's is when we least expect mm -hmm. it, right? right? It's not right. when we're thinking about it. it that's a really good point. Um, I talked to a, a friend of mine who is a pilot, um, and I talked to him about, you know, how long did it take you to figure out, 
all the switches and the buttons and everything to make that plane fly. And, and he says, oh, that stuff is so easy right now. I mean, it's like back of your hand muscle memory at this point. And he said, what you have to, what you have to remember is what the procedures are when there's a crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you have to revert back to your training. You cannot act emotionally or the plane will crash. You have to act out of your training. And he said, there's only about six or seven crisis scenarios that require you to remember the process like that, especially if, for example, when like the pressure cab, the cabin pressurization yep. drops, you literally have 12 seconds or you pass out and die. And so once that hits, <laughs> you have to kick in right now your training or the entire plane dies. Wow. And I thought, holy cow, maybe I don't want to fly anymore. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> but, but I mean, I think it's similar. It's there are certain spiritual crises that show up, call them landmines if yeah. you want to, that once those things hit, mm. it almost has to be muscle memory, spiritual memory in a sense of what is the spiritual training that I have been working on for years now and it just kicks in. Yeah. And then you, you have a uh, surviving chance. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes it takes years before you get to that point. Yeah. There may, be, there may be some people watching that listen to your sermon on Sunday and it's like, okay, I've got muscle memory and I feel like I'm constantly having to function in that muscle memory crisis um, time. Yeah. And so they maybe feel like Jesus cleared them. You, you talked about the end of your sermon. You're the only one that can keep you condemned, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm. And maybe they're feeling condemned because they've been going through crisis after crisis. And maybe their perception of God's goodness is getting distorted. I mean, if you look through all your application on, on Sunday, um, mm. you're, you're tempted to righteously rage, but you choose to quietly calculate. So let's apply all of those together. Sure. So someone's in crisis. Mm. They're starting to believe that it's because of their sin, let's say. That's what they're tying it to. Or, and then the second thing is like, God's not good because why would he treat me this way in my crisis? Like, why, why is this crisis getting worse? And why does it keep coming? And why do I keep suffering? I don't want to suffer anymore. I'd say that's an example right there of righteously raging. Okay, so they're yeah. righteously raging. But in that moment, I don't want to suffer anymore. They are a little bit like Job's friends mm-hmm. and his wife that say, curse God and die. Just be done with this. Yeah. So how do we, how do we fight this? that. I know that's deep. Let's end with this. So I'm just, how do we fight that? Like, because you're doing all those things, but you're not quietly calculating. How do we move to that quietly calculating at the end? Well, let me tell you a personal story. <laughs> and and I, I mentioned this at the end of the, at the first service this weekend, that I have a story related to this, but I'm not ready to tell it yet. Um, and I will one day, uh, but let me, let me kind of tell you where I'm at with it right now. So I've recently had um, a, a health crisis that, that, that forced me to come face to face with my mortality for the very first time in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that legitimately could take you out. Right. And so I thought, um, and I realized there's a couple of things. One, I don't, I don't want to leave this world any earlier than I would have to. Um, I don't want to leave my family any earlier than I have to. And so I began to ask the questions, God, why would you let this happen? Or why would I, will you let me experience this kind of crisis? And, um, and then two thoughts, and that was kind of like my version of righteously raging. But then uh, hopefully as I listened and prayed through it, there were two thoughts that came to my mind. Um, one is that, that it is not myself or anything else that sustains me. It's, it's God who sustains me. Yeah. And so that kind of brings a calm over whatever crisis there is. Um, and, 
And then that theme all of a sudden began to pop off the page all over scripture, that God is a God who knows how to and loves to sustain his people. Uh, and then the passage where, where the apostle Paul in the New Testament uh, mentions that he asked God to take this thorn out of his flesh three different times, right? And I don't know what that looks like. I bet it was more than just three different prayers. I bet it was three different periods, maybe long periods yeah. of him begging mm -hmm. God to take this thorn away from him. And every single time God says, nope, not gonna do it. Instead, my grace is sufficient for you. Yeah. And so I think what happens is when you allow scripture to be embedded in your mind, then after you go through a period of righteously raging, then all of a sudden, um, the, the, the calm and confident voice of scripture begins to overwhelm that rage and begins to give you truth that gives you more confidence and gives you more peace. Um, and that's just my story. And again, I'm not gonna go into more detail about that right now, but um, that's, that's, I think, what it looks like to mm. shift from righteous rage to quiet calculation. I don't, I don't know if we can end on that. That was awesome. I think that was very beautiful. I, I think that's what people are longing to do. Um, and I'm sure there's people that are suffering that are watching this podcast right now and they're trying to figure out what time that's going to happen. And so I'm just really thankful for us being able to have this conversation today about John chapter eight and specifically even shame and sin and what does it look like to, to go through suffering and I'm just thankful that we're able to have something like Church Unscripted like this. So thank you for watching. Um, we're thankful that you're here with us this week. And we'd love for you to like and subscribe, hit the notification bell. So next episode, you're able to see it when it comes on. And we're looking forward to talking to you next week.